Hi there, I'm Jennifer Stewart. And I'm Katherine Clark, and we're so glad that you're joining us today for The Honest Talk. We're excited to be bringing you conversations with some of North America's most inspiring women, and we are thrilled to be partnering with RBC as we do so. This podcast is about leaving behind the talking points and diving into the real, authentic, and unique personal stories of our guests. Stories which we hope might influence or inspire your own journeys. So let's get right to it. Anne-Marie Menowick is a widely respected, award-winning national journalist who has worked at every major television news organization in the country and reported on some of the biggest news stories of our time. For the past five years, Anne-Marie, who also happens to be the mother of triplets and a passionate advocate for women's and children's issues, has helped Canadians wake up and get informed as host of CTV's flagship show, Your Morning. We're thrilled to have her on The Honest Talk. Welcome, Anne-Marie. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. All right. So, Anne-Marie, we were just mentioning in the intro that you are a mom of triplets. And I have to say, I remember the first time that you and I actually met, um, you very kindly asked about my new baby. And I kind of went on about how hard it was. And then I asked if you had children. You said, yes, I have triplets. And I was like, okay, I will not talk anymore about my tough life. <laughs> So um, that's, that's frankly superhero status, but there is an interesting story before you had the triplets. It's the triple banana story. Oh, can you tell us about that? that? Yes, I can. Um, So I should mention, first of all, my kids are now 15 and a half. So I have triplet teenagers, which is a whole other thing. Um, but the story about the, the triplet banana is really neat. After the tsunami, uh, we went back to Sri Lanka to shoot a documentary. My father is Sri Lankan. And so we went, I was working at Global at the time, and we went and we shot this documentary. And, you know, the roads were washed out. There wasn't a lot of places to get food. Uh, and we stopped at this roadside stand and bought bananas and nuts. And, and when I was in the vehicle, I peeled back this banana. Well, there were three bananas in one skin. And the driver at the time, he laughed and he said, oh, I said, what's so funny? And he said, oh, that's an omen. I said, for what? He said that you're going to have triplets. And I thought it was so funny. I took a photograph of me with this triplet banana. And then fast forward two and a half years later, and I'm pregnant with triplets. And my husband and I were laying on the couch one night. And all of a sudden, Daryl sat straight up and he goes, the bananas. And I was like, what? And he says, the bananas. And he just kept looking at me, the bananas, the bananas. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, the bananas from Sri Lanka. And he went and got the photograph from downstairs. And then we both started crying because we had completely forgotten about that story. But anyway, that photo is now framed and in our bedroom. You know, Buddhist Sri Lankans are very auspicious. And so they would have seen that as a very auspicious sign, which we had completely forgotten about. So amazing. The story kind of gives me chills. It's it's such a, a neat story. So fast forward, your children are 15. I can't even imagine as you <laughs> three teenagers. Uh, but obviously, they're, they're smart, they're capable, um, really strong individuals. In all honesty, what did you have to do to grow this national career that you have and raise three incredible little humans? Oh, thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, we, we take a lot of pride in our kids. They're really great people, as you as you've said. You know, what? I, first of all, we don't know any different than having triplets. So this is this is all we know. I have a really supportive partner, my husband, Daryl uh, Kanayan-Belt, who did media for a long time, and he networks in uh, strategic comms. 
he is an incredibly supportive partner and it really does take two people to make this happen. He is a big encourager for me. And when I would want to be cautious, he is always the one saying go. And I, I was fortunate enough to be able to make choices around what was important. And, you know, my mom taught me this from the time I was a kid. And so I'm really big believer in reverse engineering. So sort of taking a picture of what you might hope life to look like and, and work backwards from that. And being around for my kids was really important for me. And, and I knew that that would be a challenge, picking a career in journalism at the time when we were working in it. But I thought if I can make choices around that, I will. I remember the first time I made a choice when I said no to something. It was to go to the Olympics when they were in Vancouver and I had just started at CBC and they had asked if I would go and host, but that meant being gone for six weeks. And I knew I could not leave my husband as amazing as he is alone with three, two and a half year olds. And so I remember being so nervous at turning down the opportunity. And I thought, I think I've just shot my career in the foot. Like, I think, think this is it. And uh, it didn't, it didn't end my career to make a choice to say, I can't leave because I have three kids at home. And I recognize being a journalist and a woman now and a broadcaster now, that choice wasn't always available to women before me, but I think it's a sign of progress that I was able to make that choice. From there on, I just always was able to decide sort of, you know, when I did evening news worked out great because I could be home in the day with my kids and then leave, you know, in the late afternoon, come and do the show and then come home. And then as my kids were getting older, I had heard from anybody I ever interviewed about, you know, raising great teenagers. They always said, if you can be around after school, if you can manage it in any way, try your best to do that. And so when an opportunity came up to do a morning show, I thought that allows me to be around during those critical times when they're going to be teenagers. And it was one of the factors in me taking this job. What did saying no um, teach you about yourself? Because you're right. I mean, we've, we've had conversations with some leading journalists who began their careers maybe in the 70s, um, the 80s. And they, I mean, not only did they not have a chance or felt that they couldn't say no, but they, in some cases, felt like they couldn't even have kids. Right. What did it teach you when you said no and your career still grew? Uh, I think it just reinforced the idea that you have to know what is important to you and you have to know what is high value to you. And that doesn't mean to say that my career wasn't high value for me. It just meant at that stage, if I had made a commitment to be able to be present for them and also be able to do a great job at, at what I wanted to have as a career, I could voice that and it didn't have to end my career. And I felt very fortunate and I felt a lot of gratitude because as you point out, there were a lot of women who fought just to have a place at the table, a space in the room, and there was no way they would have felt the freedom to make that choice. And so it taught me for myself that you can, you can voice that. And you can still be given another chance. You strike me as someone that's highly organized, uh, that has their life together, uh, <laughs> likely has a schedule. Uh, yes. Uh, prepared for any situation. What were you, were you like this as a child? So I was a bit OCD as a kid, but I have come to learn through life and through much counseling that sometimes being hyper-organized means you're also trying to stay out of chaos. And so I think as a kid being really OCD, that was just about trying to find some stability and structure so that I would feel calmer. I'm very list oriented and I have usually a running, when life feels busy, like it does during the holidays, I actually have a rundown and I post it on the fridge of our house that has columns of like times of day, who's doing what pickup. Because when you have three kids right away, you are outnumbered. Like guys, when we, when the babies came home from the hospital, we had a chart book 
because you are tired and you don't know who's pooped and who's fed and who peed and all of the things. And so we just had columns and you write down who did what and when, and there was no time for baby books. So that chart book is actually our baby book. Like we're like, Oh, look, Annabelle smiled for the first time on this day or <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It is. A, it's a good keepsake. Yeah. I'm, I'm all about lists, but I'm nowhere near as organized as you are. Tell me if I have this right, Emery. Your mom is Scottish. Your yeah. dad is Sri Lankan. Yes. Your older sister was born in England. Yeah. Your younger sister was born in Saskatchewan. Yes. You were born in Sri Lanka. Yes. You all grew up in Alberta. Yes. That's not a linear path. No. <laughs> How did you end up in Lethbridge? How did you end up in Alberta? So mom and dad, uh, they met in London, England. Dad was there for school. He'd come from Sri Lanka. My mom had come down from Aberdeen from the Highlands. That, she was not about that. She wanted to be in the big city. She met my dad, who was in the 60s. Uh, and, you know, they they were a, a mixed race couple. They were a mixed faith couple. He was Buddhist at the time. And she was, you know, from a Plymouth Brethren background. So there was there was controversy on both sides of their family. Uh, they had my eldest sister, Naomi, in England. Uh, then they went back to Sri Lanka and just before, so the war was starting in the seventies and there were some troubles and, and they were kicking out, um, foreigners. My mom is British and my dad's dad came to him and said, you need to take Muriel and Naomi and you need to think about leaving. And so when my mom and dad talked about it, they thought, you know, we could go back to the UK, but we've done that. Australia seems far. Not sure if we want to do Germany. And Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau was making a tour and was in Sri Lanka and they heard him speak. And that's how they decided to apply to come to Canada. They, they loved what he had to say about this country. And so this is old school, right? They, they are writing, there's no fax machines even. They are writing and sending things. And my dad tells this great story about how he was in this, um, it was a doctor's office, I think. And in the back of this magazine, there were these jobs advertising in Canada. And his background is veterinary um, husbandry. And so he applied to this farm. Eventually he gets the job. And in that amount of time, the troubles in the country have increased. Um, my mom gets pregnant with me. And so literally weeks before they left, uh, Sri Lanka, I was born. Wow. They left in, they left in August. I was born in May and my mom's parents had moved from Scotland to California. So mom took Naomi and myself and went to California. My dad went up to Saskatchewan when he lands in Saskatchewan. He finds out the job that he's come to has basically disappeared. And that's the guy who runs this large hog operation had, had almost got under. And so he went from running uh, an estate in Sri Lanka to mucking pigs. And we have these beautiful letters between my mom and dad across the border about, you know, when you come here, there's a place called the Salvation Army where I think we can get a coat for Naomi because I hear she needs something in the winter. I mean, there's this, this life that they came to, they had no reference point for anything. So they meet at the border in Saskatchewan and um, the Canadian government won't let me in because I don't have the proper paperwork. And so dad is at the border for three days arguing with the, with the border guys there. And finally, the, the man who he worked for was a big liberal supporter, I guess, at the time. And through various channels, the minister of immigration at the time ends up calling this border office to give me permission <laughs> to come across the border. This is a true story. And so we have this great photo of my sort of crossing the border, I'm this baby in my dad's arms and there's combines and swathers behind them because they were really in rural Saskatchewan. And that was how I entered the country. And from then on, they lived in Saskatchewan for a bit. We lived in Brooks for quite a while, Brooks, Alberta, and then finally moved to Lethbridge. I think it's so remarkable how brave uh, parents are that immigrate to a new country to keep yes. their children and their family safe. Like it just, it, it honestly brings 
tears to my eyes, you know, going somewhere that you don't know that's completely foreign to you, but you just know you're going to keep your baby safe. It's, it's remarkable. I don't even know if I could do it. Like to leave your whole life, to leave your family, all your support systems and a really good, comfortable life. And to come to a place where sometimes, you know, people, because of my dad's color, he didn't have a strong accent, but he had an accent. And at the time in the seventies, being a brown man and being accented, you know, a lot of people treated you like you didn't know anything. Right. Have you ever shared with our prime minister today the impact that his father's government had on your whole life and your whole trajectory? I did. So Canada 150, we had a chance to do a sit down uh, with Justin Trudeau. And I, I brought him not only that photograph, but I told him the story about how I was sitting here at this interview because my dad listened to his dad give a speech. And that's how I ended up here. Wow. That's so great. I also think that we we don't necessarily think about how these little moments in life can in fact um, alter our entire uh, our entire trajectory right I mean we we think we're set on one path and and that's the beauty and and the um, the upheaval of life you just never know where it's going to take you it gave us a lot of courage it, ta- it taught us to be brave like your mom and dad just told us you can do anything and that's how you know, we were growing up in Brooks, Alberta. I was one of the only brown kids in my school. And mom and dad were like, you can do anything. You can be anything and you can go anywhere. And they were a living example of that. Did you face pushback in racism as you were growing up? Oh, absolutely. You know, I didn't have the words to call it racism. And I don't think it was ever titled that in our home. But, you know, I tell this story sometimes about how my first day of grade one, um, I showed up at school and, um, you know, not everyone's comfortable with the word, so I won't use it, but somebody hurled, hurled a, a racial slur at me and I didn't know what it meant, but I knew it had been said with so much hatred and I knew that it was bad. That's all I knew. I was six. So, you know, the teacher, I told the teacher, that's what you do when you're six. And I remember, you know, in hindsight, this was not the best thing, but she took me by the hand and it took me class to class to point out who had said this bad word, which, you know, not what we would do now. And then I remember I just being really self-conscious and really scared. And then after school found this the kid came out of the school and I went and told the teacher, but I went home and told my dad that story. And this is the pivotal part of that story for me is my dad said, what he said to you actually means that you're from Pakistan. And he took me and he showed me this big map because all immigrant parents have a big map somewhere in the seventies in their house with pushpins <laughs> of all the places you traveled. And he said, this is where Pakistan is. This is Sri Lanka where you were born. He said, clearly this boy is not smart enough to know the difference. And in that moment, I figured out, Oh, I'd rather be brown and smart than dumb. And that was sort of like, I think, a real crystallizing piece for me about intelligence and education and wisdom and knowledge. That's, that was the important piece of who I was. Isn't that interesting? Because so mm-hmm. much, I mean, so much racism is, is hatred, but so much of it is ignorance. So for your dad, mm-hmm. intelligence to indicate to you uh, what was wrong with what that, that little boy said to you and, and how it was factually. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's just pretty remarkable as well. Your parents sound like absolutely amazing people. And Marie, we read that your original career goal was to study law and to be a lawyer. <laughs> is, is that right? That's true. What changed? So I was in the 12th grade and I watched a lot of Cosby show and Claire Huxtable. And I wanted that. I wanted like four kids and a great townhouse and to be fashionable and have a great career. These were my mind goals from the time I was four, grade four. So when I was in grade 12, my mom brought me to Ottawa for the first time. And she was here on a conference. And somebody, one of her colleagues at the conference said, do you know what you want to do for pre-law? And I didn't. And he said, what do you like to do? I said, I really like to read. I really like to write. I like to research things. And he said, what about journalism? 
that had never, ever been brought up to me before ever. And I started reading about it and I thought, this is the job. This is all the things that I like to do without law school. So, so this seems like the career for me. And you're now the lead anchor on one of Canada's most watched morning shows. Um, you literally help people wake up and get through their mornings. Like me. Oh, that's nice to hear. Thank you. But you're getting out of bed at 3 a.m. What? How, how do you still function? Because you mentioned you're, you're home after school and you're, you're present with your children. And that was a goal. How do you make your day in such a way that you're still awake and you're still functioning? Well, we have, you know, it took a while, honestly, when I, so when I came to your morning, I had just left doing the six o'clock news. And sometimes I would do the evening news on the national as well. And so I literally flipped my broadcast time by 12 hours. And honestly, the first month that we started in the schedule, my body was physically sick. Like I felt like I had the flu. I think I even threw up one morning. And I remember looking at Daryl and going, oh my God, what did I do? What did I just do to myself? Like, I don't know if I'm physically, I can survive this. And then you're, you just, you get used to it and you figure out like there's certain hacks and things that I had to change lifestyle wise. Like I'd never been a person to work out regularly. And I found a trainer and I started to work out because that improved my sleep. We have a really great team of people here. And I'm, I'm not just throwing that out. I mean, if you're going to wake up in the middle of the night with people, you have to really like them. You have to enjoy coming here to be with them. And we really do. And everybody gets it. But also I've now like, I'm, we're in our seventh season. I actually prefer these hours because you have a jump on the day ahead of everybody. Um, sometimes I go home and I have a nap about 45 minutes in the afternoon. And I do that because my kids are teens now and they stay up late. And I, I learned, I read this about teens and it's absolutely true. They want to talk to you when you're not distracted. So that's typically when you're about to get into bed. And mm-hmm. that's when they want to unload about their day. That's when they want to, they want to know that they have your attention. And so in order to be able to be awake for that and for my kids not to hear me say, Oh, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. I, that's why I started working out. And that's why I just made some lifestyle changes just to be able to be a little bit more present. And they're very aware. I'm fortunate. They're 15. So they're very aware of my schedule. So if I say I'm hitting a sleep window, they know we don't miss the window because then you're up for hours. And so I'll head upstairs and go to bed. And they're pretty good about respecting that boundary. But what was it like for you as a young journalist? Cause you didn't necessarily have someone, um, to look up to who looked different, right? Like you, yeah. There was a pretty homogenous looking group of people on TV, yeah. especially. Did it affect you? Well, I remember one time dad calling me into the living room and Ian Hannah Mansing was on. He was filling in on, on the national. And I remember my dad saying to me, he's like, look at, they let that young man keep his name. And that was significant because at the time people would anglicize their names. My dad's name, in fact, he goes by Mervyn now, but that's actually not his name. He went to boarding a British boarding school and they, they changed his name so that it was easier to say and to spell. So that was a really big moment when he was like, and that young man kept his name. But yeah, there were not a lot. And I didn't think of it at the time that you were making space. I, I realized, I mean, you, you pay attention and you realize that diversity was important. And I also knew when I looked at my career, I was at the right age. I was young enough that they didn't have to pay me a big salary um, and that they, I could still grow, but I was also diverse. But I'll tell you something that I did realize, and this I hope is the next phase for us in broadcasting is some people call it, I'm palatably uh, diverse, meaning, you know, I don't have an accent. Uh, I understand, you know, uh, a Christian faith. There's no real mystery to me. And so my hope is in this next phase of diversity and inclusion that it's not just visual diversity and cult, but it's actual inclusion, meaning culture is important um, and, and relevant to conversations and to coverage, and that we're not just covering it from sort of one lens. And diversity quotes become a really 
more and more I see the the need for it because we will, uh, as networks, we'll hire people that visually look different, but we want to make sure that we sound and connect differently as well, because diversity isn't just about skin color. And if we make it just about skin color, then we're missing the point. And when you hire people in this environment, I think you have to give some thought to how you also protect people. You know, this year mm-hmm. we such an onslaught of online attacks, particularly, um, unfortunately, against female journalists. Uh, from your vantage point, how is this impacting the industry? So I was listening to Vassie's interview that she did with you guys. And I'm sort of from that school of thought too, where I just turn it off. I cannot engage. And I don't, I recognize not everybody does that. And some of the threats are serious enough and you shouldn't ignore them. There's a strength in pushing back and in just being there and in being able to withstand. But that also means support from newsrooms to be able to do that as well. And for them not to brush it off and for them to take things that are serious, seriously, and not just, you know, there seems to be this mindset sometimes, or there used to be that, well, you've put yourself out there, so you should be able to take it. And I just don't think that's fair. And I don't, I don't even, I don't think that's true. And so I think the protection has to be there, both from a network standpoint. And to your point about providing protections, I noticed this a few years ago when a lot of the organizations, media and otherwise, started to give um, space. So they would take young women or men of color and they would give them sort of these prominent fellowships or roles. But I remember meeting one of them at one of these galas and I said, congratulations, this is exciting. I said, how do you feel? And she looked around, she said to me, I'm terrified. And I said, why are you scared? And she said, because I don't know how to use my voice and I don't know if it will be supported when I use it. And so it taught me then the importance of having mentorship alongside of opportunity. One of the things that I've read that you've said, you talked about helping young women understand that they have a light. and. I was curious what you meant by that. And, you know, that conversation that you just described, you helped someone to see a situation differently. What did you mean by helping young women figure out that they have a light? I think, you know, I'm raising two young women now, and I actually don't remember saying that, but I do believe it. And um, I have these two young women now, and you realize in society, the things women do or that are trained, uh, even in using their voice, we've all read the same reports about how Women will, you know, sugarcoat language and they, you know, they ask things in questions, but even before they'll give an answer, they have to quantify or qualify it, or they use a softer voice so that it doesn't seem strong. And I realize we do all of these things because we're afraid of being shut down. So even though you're given a space at the table, you're worried that if you actually use your voice, someone's going to talk over you or they're going to shut the idea down. So you try to make yourself, you know, less threatening. And I think understanding that being threatened by a strong woman isn't, isn't a you problem. It's a them problem. And the more women that we have supporting other women to just be strong and to just speak plainly, I think then it becomes more normal. You know, we're, we're going into 2023, which is absolutely wild because I feel like we've been in this like standstill <laughs> 2020 and the world has changed and workplaces are changing. What advice do you have for professional women as we launch into a new year at this like very charged moment in history? Oh, that's a really good and a big question. Um, I'd say for younger women who are starting out, not to be afraid, but also to find people to, it's okay to find people to help you along the way. It doesn't mean you don't know what you're doing. It doesn't mean you're going to be judged poorly for it. I think it's good to gain some wisdom. I right now am at a stage in my career where I am also looking for wisdom. 
I think heading into 2023, boy, if anything, we've learned anything in these last few years is that you can plan and you can have all the words of the year that you want, but there is no way to tell what is coming at you in the year. So also to be adaptable, like just to be able to, to roll with it and to know that if it doesn't turn out that how you've planned it, that's okay. Because you got to dig into the other strengths that you have of, am I resilient? Am I adaptable? Um, what can I do? I mean, last year I had all these kinds of great words and things written down and somebody gave me an interview and I, you know, had a really great strong saying and you know, people loved it. But then I hit April of 2022 and I was like, if I have one more wave come and hit me and knock me down, I don't know what's going to happen. And so then I just figured out finding joy may not look like what I thought it was going to look like. And that is okay. I think we're just in this really strange time. And I'm having a hard time, sorry, answering that question only because work has changed so much. And I think if I could reflect on anything, it would be that work life office balance has changed so much. Half my team still works from home. So in order to be able to like communicate with them, we have to figure out, I'm, I'm calling people on the phone from a generation of people who hate calling on the phone. But I'm like, <laughs> if I can't see you here in person, I got to talk to you on the phone because we have to communicate. And so that's the biggest challenge I find heading into 2023 is nothing looks the same. Nothing looks the same. Work doesn't look the same. Um, industry doesn't look the same. And so that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to figure out is 2023. What does that look like to be strong and survive in, in a year? And I would just say, be adaptable, know what your strengths are and use them with agility. You bring in energy and an optimism, uh, that is contagious. And, you know, you show that every morning as when we were saying earlier, you help people wake up. You do that in this conversation too. And it's, it's just been such a joy to have the chance to talk to you. And what a great way for us to start 2023 with that dose of enthusiasm that can help people, you know, find their inner resilience again and, and move forward into a fairly unknown territory right now. Thank you for being a part of this conversation, Emily. Uh, and thanks for watching the show in the morning. Morning television is very intimate. People are watching when they're in their pajamas and they haven't brushed their teeth and they don't have their world face on yet. And so it's always a big compliment when people make us part of their morning. So thank you for that. That's a wrap. And thank you to our wonderful listeners across Canada and around the world for joining us. If you'd like to listen to previous episodes, you can subscribe to The Honest Talk wherever you get your podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our website, thehonesttalk.ca. Finally, a big thank you to our sponsor, RBC, which offers digital-first solutions, advice, and services that go beyond banking to help you realize your true potential. And that's what this podcast is all about. You can find more info at rbc.com slash business. But for now, stay healthy and stay safe. And we truly look forward to having you back soon for more of The Honest Talk.